Welcome to the very first episode of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, aka the Mammal Podcast, brought to you by the University of Minnesota Medical School Medicine and Machine Learning Club, aka the Mammal Club. My name is David Wu and I will be your host today. We are a group of students passionate about learning more about the future of medicine and AI and what that will bring. This podcast will feature interviews from prominent figures in academia, industry, and medicine, exploring the cutting edge of healthcare's newest frontier, medicine and machine learning. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Waite, the new director of urologic oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. In addition to this role, Dr. Waite is currently helping build a new center for AI and medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. In this episode, we will be talking about his unique path in medicine, and how it led to building one of the largest and most comprehensive kidney cancer imaging datasets we have today, the KITS-19 dataset. I hope you enjoy. Let's get to it. So, hey, Dr. Waite. Uh, <laughs> my name is David. Uh, I guess before we begin, I should disclose a, a potential conflict of interest. Is uh, So Dr. Waite was my PI this summer. Um, we had a, a great summer doing... Um, kidney cancer and AI, but I guess what the specifics of what we were doing is we were doing, we were preparing a big data set to be used in a big AI competition. And, um, but I guess he's, uh, you're gonna be starting a new job soon, right? Uh, you just moved to Cleveland. Um, and yeah, I guess, can you tell us about what, what that looks like and you know, what your new job is like? And also how's the move? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's, it was tricky moving in the middle of COVID. It's a, an unusual time to sell your house and buy a house and try to get the kids moved and settled into a new position um, and new schools and, and all of that with a lot of uncertainty around us. But it's a great uh, opportunity. Had a, a wonderful time at University of Minnesota. It was a wonderful place to work and uh, led to a lot of um, connections and collaborators that really got this project going uh, utilizing artificial intelligence and and particularly to use it in kidney cancer um, and now i'm here at cleveland clinic uh, as the center director for urologic oncology and we're excited and are interested in, in creating a center here to help researchers use the tools of of uh, machine learning and and particularly deep learning to try to improve patient care mm. Wow. Uh, I guess I'm pretty curious, like how, like, what was your path in medicine? Like, like, how did you go from, you know, urologic oncology to like integrating AI? Um, yeah. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, you bet. Um, my, this is a totally unexpected path for me. I think um, uh, even medicine was an unexpected path. I started off as a psychology major. Oh, wow. Undergrad <laughs> <laughs> And um you know, I always had a, an interest and passion for science, but always loved the humanities and found myself kind of weaving in and out of science and humanities as an undergrad, uh, eventually settling um, uh, or not settling, so to speak. I, I pursued a degree in both chemistry and liberal arts and sciences. Um, so I could, I could simultaneously study both. And, and the thing- So I were you a chem and psych double major? Uh, no, I, I dropped psych and then I moved and did the liberal arts and sciences, which was oh, a, nice. a bachelor's degree um, in, 
in just a broad spectrum of humanity. So it included, you know, you had to have two to three years of a foreign language and you had mm. to take philosophy and literature classes and those sorts of things. Um, and, and then a chemistry major. So I was a dual major. I got a BA and a BS. Oh, nice. Um, and that's what I love about medicine is that it fuses the science and humanity together and mm. it brings together the, the framework of the scientific method to, to understand the world around us and particularly with respect to disease and how it affects us and how we can modify that and or prevent it to try to improve patient outcomes. But it also uh, incorporates the humanity side of caring for a fellow traveler on the earth as we're going through <laughs> different challenges. And it's a natural fusion in my mind, but AI is also one of those fusions, right? It's, it's one of those, um, uh, it's a construct where you can take really cool uh, science and use it to help make people's lives better. And that's, that's the thing that excited me about it. I would say my, my path, um, kind of came to it, uh, I was viewing it from the clinical side as, as uh, I'm a kidney cancer surgeon, uh, among other types of cancer, but uh, it was long known that tumor size was an important component of predicting many things about how a patient was going to do with a kidney tumor. And about 10 years ago, there were a couple of analog scoring systems that came out that said, hey, you know, tumor size is great, but there are many more details about that patient and the tumor that are contained in that CT scan, and, and we haven't really been utilizing them. And uh, these, these analog scoring systems kind of made some attempts to quanti quantitate some of these other details. And uh, the exciting thing was, is they, they added some, some predictive ability to oversize alone um, and, and that was one intriguing data point to me. And then the second was um, there, there was also some efforts that we were involved in, some papers we wrote a couple of years back where we tried to quantify the amount of fat and muscle that was on a scan um, to, to get a better idea of, of the, some of the uh, characteristics of that patient that had the tumor. And, uh, and indeed, we found out that that was also very predictive of how long that patient would stay in the hospital and whether when they got done with their hospitalization after a cancer surgery, whether they were able to go to their home or whether they needed to go to a healthcare facility like a nursing home or whether they needed to have a nurse come into their home. And it was as predictive or more predictive than, than other details that we thought were important, like, you know, some of their comorbidities in the past, whether they'd had um, high blood pressure or diabetes or how old they were, those things were predictive, but this is above and beyond that. Mm -hmm. And, and so those details started getting me to think, wow, there's a lot of information there in a CT scan about this patient more than we've been utilizing. And, and part of the reason is because it is, it's, it's complex to get around and it's, um, and it's hard to get at all of the information that's there, but we're certainly leaving some of that on the table and we could really utilize this to really improve both prediction of how that patient might do um, on outcomes that are important to the patient and to the doctor, mm -hmm. but also we would be um, 
you know, able to even pursue other things like diagnosis and or treatment selection, et cetera, because we have more accurate information about that patient and, and we can perhaps personalize medicine even more. And that with those kind of ideas swirling around in my head is when I kind of walked across the street from the medical center to the Department of Computer Science starting to look for a collaborator. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh-huh. So, um, and it took a little while to, you know, I, I didn't know anybody in computer science. I was relatively new to the area and... Um, Were you just like knocking on doors or...? I mean, I initially sort of, I, I, I mean, I went through the website looking for computer scientists and trying to read kind of what some of them were researching on. And, mm. you know, I made, I made initial one that I thought might, might um, be helpful. And, and, and I had some different clinical questions also at the time. Um, and, and then that, that one didn't have particular expertise, but then they referred me to someone else and I went to that person and approached mm -hmm. them and, and they had some expertise in the area I was looking at, but also limited bandwidth um, in terms of collaborative time. And, and I was also limited somewhat by my collaborative time. Um, and then eventually, eventually through these multiple conversations found another collaborator then that really fostered a really great collaboration now that we've mm -hmm. been collaborating now over the last uh, four, four to five years. I'm curious, like, what was your initial idea that, like, made you decide, okay, I'm going to walk across the street, start knocking on doors? Like, what was that idea? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think particularly that led to the AI was, was this idea that there's a lot of information in this CT scan mm. that is more than a single person can capture mm -hmm. and, and quantify and understand. And, and that, if we could enroll the computers to help us, then mm -hmm. we'd be able to sift through and organize all of this data that's there to um, to make you know better decisions and better predict predictions about what will happen with our patients. Mm -hmm. So that that was kind of that was the idea. Realizing that those initial kind of analog skips, uh, scoring systems were helping to make better patient decisions, but they were not really being utilized because, you know, they, they take extra effort and extra training and extra time mm. uh, to generate those scores. And also and they had to be manually done too, right? Like someone's got to go in and like measure things. Exactly. They had mm. to be manually done and, and therefore the uptake was not great. Um, and, and just, just realizing that there's, there's a lot of information that, is not being utilized and and you know and hearing things through just the lay press um, about things that were astounding to me like uh, image classifications you know that, that oh yeah that computers were being able to identify things like like dogs and and mm -hmm. cats you know and, and thinking there's something there there's a a framework in computer imaging that maybe can help us really understand medical images and yeah and so that was sort of that's what sort of prompted the the foray out of my comfort zone into mm. to the I'm a, yeah I'm a former econ major and like that reminds me of the phrase uh, cash on the table you know there's yeah. just there's just cash on the table and like there's data in that imaging that could be used and we're just kind of leaving there you know it's kind of weird to think that you know yeah. we have all these ct scans there's probably so much data in there but i guess in the past we haven't been using it Right. Um, right. I guess I'm curious, like, you know, in these like years of collaboration, do you think that idea has changed a little bit or like, how has that like grown, you know? 
Yeah, I think fundamentally it has, that idea is still kind of the, the motivating idea of, of a lot of what we're doing. Um, I think I've, I've learned a tremendous amount about the techniques and the approaches that we can take and what, what's feasible and what isn't feasible and, and um, you know, and what, what uh, might, might be usable and, and also certainly the shortcomings. I think that's something that's always um, important to understand when you're undertaking any sort of research endeavor. Um, you need to know the shortcomings of the research and where you might get in trouble making conclusions. And I think, I think you know, in this, this challenge that we hosted, every one of the algorithms completely missed one tumor. And, and that's- Oh, really? That, yeah, there was one tumor that every algorithm outlined the cyst instead of the tumor. Oh, wow. And, and so, it, you know, though these algorithms are super powerful and will continue to get better, um, it, it also really requires uh, some oversight and some, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, human input and human evaluation to make sure they will really help us achieve the goals that we hope to and, and, and need to be cautious that we don't implement something that might end up harming a patient uh, as well. Mm. I, I guess we should probably take a step back and like talk about the challenge that we we posted and you know yeah. kind of the results and I think that's I actually didn't know that that there was you know all the algorithms missed a, you know they misclassified something I think that's actually like a very interesting story. Yeah. And I, I guess my question on top of that is do you think the average surgeon would have caught that? Uh, I think so. Right now, I think so. Yes, the average surgeon or the average radiologist would would probably have caught that um, with appropriate caution. Um, but yeah, yeah. If we if we want to talk to the, about this challenge a little bit, um, I, I think that we we recognized that uh, one of our goals was to move things forward as rapidly as possible, and uh, we live in a time where that, that is that is certainly um, one of the greatest things about the time that we live in is we can move things forward quickly if we kind of harness uh, and communicate and make things available for many people to work on the problem at once. And, and so in medical imaging AI, one of the hardest things to generate is the, is the data set. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then we also want to be careful that we don't ever put any patients protected healthcare at risk, healthcare data, mm -hmm. healthcare information. And so, uh, you know, we, we spent most of the time over the last several years is, was creating a data set where we could identify a cohort of patients who underwent uh, surgery for a suspected renal cell cancer and um, collecting their preoperative scans and then collecting data that would correlate their postoperative uh, findings, their clinical course, their pathologic outcomes uh, to be able to then you create a data set where we can then study these things using machine learning techniques. And um, a big part of that was to create a, a labeled data set of, on the preoperative scans. And that, mm -hmm. that was, you know, in the end, it's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hours by uh, our team creating 70,000 labeled images, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 
these patients who underwent CT scans and then underwent surgery and then collecting the clinical and pathologic outcomes on these patients. And, and so in order to then make this data available, we worked with the Cancer Imaging Archive um, as well as a Mikai uh, conference and created one and grandchallenges.org. And we created a challenge where we released two thirds of the data to the public uh, of these labeled images with, with our expert um, created segmentation masks for these CT scans and then uh, allowed the greater research community access to these and they were able to train their models. And we had more than 100 teams from five continents around the world wow. in this challenge. And they, they trained their models and then we released for a very short window of time a couple of weeks, we released unlabeled CT scans and then allowed them to use their algorithms to generate masks. And then they submitted them back to us and then we compared them to the expert labels and then, mm. um, and then had a leaderboard and, and then had the top teams then speak at, at, at a concurrent symposium at the Mikai 2019 conference in Shenzhen, China. Mm. I guess I should uh, let the listener know that I was actually one of the annotators, the lowly annotators of uh, this year's data. Um, pretty much what I did was I spent a lot of my summer circling kidneys <laughs> on CT scans. Um, but I guess it's interesting. It's like, it's great to hear the big picture of like what we're doing, you know, like, I guess we're, we're literally like feeding data to this, like, you know, to these AI algorithms and we're kind of like training the future in a, in a weird way. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's like, it's cool to see that big picture perspective. And I guess in like the, the micro scale, like when I'm just there, like circling kidneys, I'm like, oh man, this is such rote menial labor. But um, I, I think like, you know, in the future, if like a computer can do it in a snap, like that's much, much better than having a med, med student do it. Right, right. And that's really the, one of the really exciting take homes is this initial work was was like mind I mean medial like oh yeah <laughs> there could hardly be something worse <laughs> I mean except, <laughs> except for maybe something that involves you know crushing physical labor but yeah. um, uh, it's it's soul crushing menial labor at least mm -hmm. uh, but the exciting thing is it's created now this really awesome data set and and the really encouraging thing is at least for the task of outlining the kidney uh, the algorithms reached the, the top top performing algorithms reached human level performance wow um, in that first data set so that's wow. really, it's really exciting you know we we use dice as a measurement of um of you know the the algorithms uh predictions compared to ground truth and kind of the human to human dice score agreement is around 0 0.97 0 0.98 on kidney and mm -hmm. that's exactly what the, the top algorithms were hitting, 0 0.97, 0 0.98. That's on. incredible. Wow. So, so the good news is those only have to be done once, right? And, uh, yeah. and yeah. now, now that can serve as a really great training set for anybody who's interested in any sort of kidney or kidney tumor problem. Um, and, and now we're working to create even more so, so the algorithms can really hit well on all genders, all... Uh, 
different ages, all ethnicities, and that, so we're really trying to expand it to a multi-institutional and even international data set so mm. that they can really perform well in all populations. And, and the good news is, you know, once, once those masks are created and once that data set that is created and available to the research community, it can, it, it can become an immeasurably valuable data set. And so I, I did a lot of those annotations as well. And oh, so man. <laughs> it, you know, it, it just, um, you just have to always keep in the back of your mind the bigger picture. <laughs> like this is, yeah. this is really good. You know, and this, and this data set now can be a repository for, for you know, hundreds and thousands of future researchers. And, and that's mm -hmm. really exciting that, that we contributed to something like that, even though it was mind numbing. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other like kidney cancer data sets like this, or is, is this really like the only one? There, uh, this is, this is the only uh, publicly available labeled, you know, segmented data set available that we're wow. aware of. There are other available. So the Cancer Imaging Archive also has a data set of preoperative or pretreatment scans um, mm -hmm. of patients with kidney tumors, but those, the labels are not available. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, it, I think that is part of the reason we had such, such high participation. And it was the, the, the challenge that had the highest participation ever in a Mackay challenge for a segmentation study. And, you know, there are many segmentation data sets available. So there's liver and there's brain and, and other data mm -hmm. sets that have been uh, available, but never before had there been a labeled kidney cancer data set available. And, um, and I think a lot of progress has been made with uh, semantic segmentation in the past several years. And it kind of, I think we hit a sweet spot where there'd been a lot of interest in this research um, mm -hmm. and, uh, other disease processes had been addressed before, but this was the first one to to make these labels available in kidney, as far mm -hmm. as I'm aware. And that really, you know, I think struck a chord. There was lots of people interested in this problem, and and they had a lot of framework in order to do the research, and they just needed the data, and we were able to provide the data, and, mm -hmm. and the, you know, those those hundred plus teams to participate. I think it's pretty cool to hear that now, like these algorithms can score 97, 98%, you know, agreement with human scores. I'm yeah. curious, you know, when, how many years away do you think we are from using this kind of technology in like your day-to-day -day clinical practice? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I, uh, it, people always make these really crazy predictions with AI, you know, um, they're, they're notorious predictions uh, made five years ago that radiologists and pathologists would be completely replaced within <laughs> 10 years and, and we're not even close to that point. Yeah. And so I always feel like technology always moves slower than it should and then suddenly mm -hmm. it moves way faster than anyone expected. So, mm. so I, I feel like um, I, I, I'm guessing somewhere in the five to five to 10 year time frame before we start to get these algorithms. Uh, and the way I would see it uh, is, is they would initially come into use in the background and be used in conjunction with radiologists and or pathologists that they would, mm. that's starting to happen already uh, to some degree in certain instances, you know, before we have a complete 
algorithm, right, that scans and looks for every problem on a CT scan, for example. I think that's mm. quite a way. Um, yeah. But for these specific defined problems, um, take an abdominal CT scan and see if there's an abnormality in the liver or in the kidney, um, et cetera. I think those aren't too far away to get them to patient uh, and point of care is probably a little further away, not, not so much from the technology capability as from probably the regulatory mm-hmm. uh, burden that will come along with that. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that might be the rate limiting step is the regulatory piece, but I think the technology is clearly getting close already. And, you know, we're, we're hoping to, you know, add in another three to 500 scans to our already 300 scans. So we'll be approaching a thousand patients. Uh, it will be a very big data set. And with these labels, we think we're going to get to the point where, although kidney segmentation rivaled human segmentation, the tumor segmentation did not. Um, mm. It came close. Uh, again, there was a little bit more human to human variability on, hu- on tumor segmentations as well. The, the DICE score for human to human was more like 90.92 or 0.93. Uh, and the winning algorithm was like 0.85, I believe. So mm. clearly below human to human, uh, but close, you know, and, and with more data and more examples um, and a, a wider, wider variety of patient population, I think it's not too far away for the technology to get there. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious because you're saying, you know, how like regulatory stuff is going to be a big hurdle in the future. Uh, and then I, I think about that, like, you know, how all of those algorithms missed that one tumor and misclassified it as like a cyst or something. I'm wondering, like, you know, who would be liable in that scenario? Like, hopefully not you, right? <laughs> Hopefully not. Probably the med students. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, they'll come knocking on my door like years later. Yeah. Well, that's why I think to the point where where there is no clinician input, I think we're very far from that and should be. And, and maybe mm-hmm. never should be to that point. I think what I would, the steps I would see is that, you know, first we get them operating and, and getting human level performance in the research setting then I think we would get them set up where in the clinical setting, we would have to do some sort of evaluation and trial to see whether there's some value added. And and what I would imagine that would be is, you know, in the background, every new scan that is done, uh, an algorithm similar to what we're helping to develop could just scan and, and then give an alert and say to the radiologist, you know, put on a mask and say, this is what I think the kidney is. I see an abnormality here. Mm. A radiologist would then confirm, yes, there is something there. And, and and then the radiologist would still use his or her clinical expertise to make the clinical judgment. And then, and then that feedback can then continue to be fed back into algorithms, right? So Mm. if, if the algorithm is making calls that the radiologist disagrees with, that's very valuable information. And Mm -hmm. that, feeds back in and then and then after using it in that scenario where it's sort of supervised then then when it starts to get really really great in that scenario then perhaps it it becomes sort of like a physician extender so now now the radiologist can read more scans because the radiologist doesn't have to spend as much time because the algorithm now can flag things that look abnormal and if it has a reliable reliable ability to call normal 
um, if it calls it normal, then the radiologist doesn't need to spend as much time evaluating each individual organ if the algorithms have already said this looks good and or if this looks bad, then the radiologist can then pay attention to those and maybe it extends the physician's ability to, to deal with a higher volume. And, you know, I would, I would see a similar thing with a pathologist that mm. it kind of will be able to initially flag the images that look abnormal, flag, say this looks normal and as it shows reliability and validity, then, then the pathologist can extend its work and do, yeah. do potentially more. But, this reminds me of the uh, the movie Iron Man. You know how he has like Jarvis, his like AI assistant or whatever, and like yeah. Jarvis kind of helps him like, you know, fight the bad guys. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Find the answers and destroy them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Like, you know, I feel like this data set is like very, very valuable. You know, and like, has anyone from like the industry approached you, uh, or like, have you thought about like kind of taking this to industry or you, you know, like I feel like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have had some, uh, we, we put a, um, in, in the release of our data set, we said it's to be used for research purposes only and not for, for commercial development. We have had some uh, partners from industry approach us about using it. Um, we, we, our hope is to, you know, to improve healthcare for patients with kidney cancer and um, and we want to be as egalitarian as possible. And that's part of the motivating factor in releasing these things. Um, but also realizing that, um, you know, even if we re release it and even if a wonderful algorithm is generated, um, you know, a, a hospital can't go out and even if the code's freely available, you know, they can't go out and download that and build out something. And so we'll, we realize at some point we'll, we'll need to partner with industry to create a product that, that can get into clinicians' hands. And uh, so we, you know, partnerships with industry, I think, are just need to be managed well and important, but our, you know, our overriding goal is trying to, trying to help as many people as possible and make it as available and democratic as possible and trying to limit the hurdles in terms of, of cost of these things uh, mm -hmm. to, to to patients and healthcare systems, just trying to, you know, get as many people as possible to be able yeah. to benefit them. So, uh, you know, in your new job, uh, do you think you're going to continue this project or do you have like your mindset on like new projects? Like do you have a dream project that you want to work on? Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the new job here in Cleveland, uh, Cleveland clinic is, is a very large and, and, um, busy medical center. So there are lots of patients, which is really, helpful for uh, these algorithms and identifying, you know, and uh, succeeding. Uh, volume is really what helps to, to help these algorithms learn, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm really excited about that. We'll continue for sure to collaborate with University of Minnesota, um, trying to forge new collaboration partnerships here at Case Western University, which is the university here in Cleveland, just mm -hmm. blocks down the road from where I work and has a very, um, met a really great research team at Case Western that is doing some really- Are you gonna be knocking on some more doors looking for faculty collaborators? Yes, yes, I've, uh, now, now it's a uh, Zoom meetings, but yeah, I've mm. had a Zoom meeting this week with one there and uh, looking at some promising options. And then the other thing that I think I love to build here is it's a framework um, to allow other researchers to not have to um, 
rebuild the will, so to speak, and, and a lot of the, the effort that we put in in constructing our data set um, can hopefully be, be repurposed and, and reused just with different disease processes. You know, it's mm. much of the computer work is similar. It's really just getting the, the clinical data set available. And, um, and so, you know, lowering the barriers to other researchers who want to do this is something that I think a center uh, would be really beneficial in doing is just making, making those barriers lower so that when other, pay, <laughs> other clinicians mm -hmm. have this hunch and this clinical idea, you know, that that it's not quite as hard for them to knock on doors, et cetera, that there's yeah. some framework in place for them to get going. I think it's really cool, like this, uh, this journey into AI that you've gone on, and it seems now you're really making like far, like making good strides. Uh, I'm curious though, like back when you were a medical train, you know, back when you're in my shoes, like a first year, second year medical student, could you have ever have anticipated that you would have, you know, kind of gone down this path and like be this passionate about this project, you know? No, I, I mean, not really. I, I, I always appreciated that computers were valuable. And in fact, we, we had, uh, I was at University of Utah and we had a medical informatics group. And I was always just, I think I was always aware as we were moving into this information age that there, there's a lot of value in information. and and that that if we have the right amount of information hopefully you know the more and more we're able to organize and collect and understand information the better we're going to be able to perform at personalizing medicine because i always always found it somewhat uh interesting particularly in cancer treatment you know when you have um these waterfall plots which are essentially plots of how patients tumors respond to chemotherapy and, and you know, and then they're all lined up from on one end, the, the non-responders on the other end to the, the extreme responders. And it always just struck me how heterogeneous the response was. And, mm. and it always struck me as the, you know, if the average person does better, then the drug gets approved. If the average person doesn't do better, then the drug doesn't get approved. But like, when you look at any population, only mm bit of the population is average, right? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. So we, we're always making these decisions on the average patient, but we really should be, if we have enough information, we should be able to know which are the ones that are going to mm. respond well and which are the ones that won't respond well. And then we select therapy accordingly. And, and so personalized medicine, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so in this this group, I, we always kind of joked around, you know, here we are as medical students, but we had this medical informatics group. And, and um, you know, the, when I first joined this group, the, the student leader said, well, why do you want to be in this group? And I said, because I want to have job security. <laughs> because I think it was just so clear to me how important computers would be in every future, including the future. Mm -hmm. And, and um, even if even if, you know, it's, it's amusing to think the entirety of the medical system would collapse, but, you know, it was sort of tongue in cheek saying that, but uh, yeah, at least if you understand computers, you still have some sort of security. <laughs> that, that's funny you say that because that's actually the exact same reason why I started the medicine and machine learning club <laughs> at our medical school um, is because, you know, I feel like AI is going to be a part of the future. So I, you know, I gotta, I want to like learn as much as I can about it. And uh, 
if you don't mind me asking, like how many years ago was that that, that you joined? Oh, it was probably two, 2002 was when I was a second year to third year medical student when I was in that. Yeah. So wow, 20 years ago. Yeah. And now 20 years later, you know, now <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned about the future, you know, regarding AI and wow, that's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's interesting. So I guess I wouldn't have anticipated it, but I think I had always recognized the, the importance. And I think, I think it's vitally important we as clinicians uh, be a part of it. I think, I think, um, you know, it's somewhat like politics for clinicians. Clinicians are notoriously not good at politics, right? We, we don't want to be involved in it. We don't yeah. want to think about it and mm -hmm. want to concentrate on our higher mission, which is caring for patients. But I, I think we also need to take a step back and say, if we're not a part of that system, we may not be able to contribute to the construct of the system that allows us to take care of patients and is more regulatory burdens get heaped mm. upon us, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and as we spend more and more of our time, for example, in the electronic medical record, um, some of it is, it, you know, it's part of, part of it because we haven't been part of those conversations. And, and I feel somewhat similar with, with uh, AI, you know, like, I think it's important that we're part of that and understand it and be involved because otherwise it will be thrust upon us, I think, without mm, our input and without yeah. our guidance and and kind of like epic right what's that <laughs> kind of like epic ehr exactly and you know and and so i think it's important that we are in tune with these issues and that we learn about it that's why i think mammals are a great idea i think i think ai uh, needs to be incorporated into medical school curriculum because i definitely change everything and we need to know how to interface with it and how to guide it. So we're a part of that conversation instead of being left out. Mm. Uh, my last question is, uh, I remember you said you're a humanities guy. I think that's really cool. You've gone you know, from humanities all the way to AI, uh, you know, like cutting edge of technology. And I, I noticed, so we're on a Zoom call right now. Um, and I noticed that behind you, there are a lot of books behind you. Uh, I'm curious if you could tell us uh, your favorite book from that big stack of books behind you. From the stack behind me? Yeah, there's a huge, there's like at least 20 books, 30 yeah. books right there. Well, one that has to do with, um, with this subject, I really liked Eric Topol's Deep Medicine. I thought that was really interesting, a good overview uh, of a lot of applications of AI and kind of a lot of the possibility, uh, the possibilities that are out there. Um, I, I really like Abraham... Bergizi, I'm not oh, sure. His yeah, name. yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's a physician author, um, who I think is fantastic, and I've read several of his uh, writings, and I really yeah. like him. Um, you, you know, they actually have a podcast together, Eric Topol and Abraham Bergis. Oh, they do. And I wrote, or funnily, funnily enough, their the name of their podcast is Medicine and the Machine, and I, I listened to like a lot of it. And uh, you know, we're starting this podcast. It's called the medicine and machine learning, the mammal podcast. So it's like going to be kind of similar to theirs, but you know, uh, I, I don't want to make the comparison that we're going to be similar because that's, they're definitely like, you know, they're like the champs in the field and we're just kind of like, I'm like a JV guy, you know? Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, that's good. That's a good tip. I didn't know about that podcast. I'll have to check it out. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah. 
And, you know, one of my all-time favorite um, physician narratives is, is um, it was actually a guy that knows Abraham Verghese. Um, it's called When Breath Becomes Air. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, Paul, uh, the Stanford guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... It's it a really sad story. <laughs> it's very sad, but it's just a, such a beautiful a novel full of just humanity and, and, and this intersection of medicine and science mm-hmm. and, and such told with such uh, such passion and beauty. Uh, it was really, yeah. really great, great book. Yeah. Oh, man, that was that was definitely a heavy read. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, maybe not best to read in times of COVID when we're already depressed, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, we'll start, we'll wrap things up right now. Um, and uh, thanks so much for, you know, being our first inaugural podcast guest. Um, and I guess best of luck in your new job. We miss you at the U already. Um, <laughs> anything you want to say before yeah. we before we go? Appreciate you doing this. And I think it's, it's great to kind of expand, expand the, the, uh, reaching out to lots of people in medicine to try to help people understand this. Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the very first Mammal Podcast. I'd like to give a special shout out to Windows 96, a producer from Brazil who generously provided us the backing audio for this podcast. I chose to feature Windows 96's music because it inspires us to look towards the future, but with a nostalgic nod towards the past. Catch us next time. Peace. Peace.